I'm Zeke Emanuel, and uh, welcome you all here. Uh, we're here to really talk about uh, using big data and uh, discovery about diseases and drugs and drug development and uh, mostly intervention de development and how to use uh, various data sources uh, that we have. And with us uh, on my immediate uh, left is uh, Neil Matterson from uh, Thomson Reuters and then Ken Davis uh, uh, from uh, Mount Sinai Hospital and Medical System in New York. Um, and we're gonna begin uh, by uh, uh, Ken Davis talking about uh, their, their development of some big data and uh, interaction with uh, drug companies and others to try to utilize it to really make advances in discoveries uh, as a sort of case study uh, from which we'll jump off. Thank you, Zeke. Um, so let me start back with a little bit of an introduction to give you some sense of what's happened to drug discovery. When I was a young neuroscientist, and I think right up until almost the turn of the century, drug discovery was really based on biology, biochemistry. And that was biochemistry that came from the really the platform from 1960 to 1980. It was based on inhibiting enzymes. It was based on finding a particular target and getting a drug to that target that might be work to turn on that target or to turn off that target. Like in the brain, that might be a neurotransmitter that you would want to either block a receptor or stimulate a receptor in the brain. And it was not that complicated and not that expensive compared to what we do now. Um, but a lot has changed since then. Um, what has changed is that we recognize that, you know, not all diseases that look the same have the same etiology, have the same pathophysiology. For instance, not everybody in my area who might have depression have the same biology that got them to that depression, or who have schizophrenia have the same biology that got them to that schizophrenia. Or what we're now learning about Alzheimer's disease is it, too, might have a lot of different ways to get to those brain changes that are senile plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. So we need to more personalized therapy. You've heard a lot about that personalizing therapy. Well, what's happened to make that possible? There's been a revolution in genomics. And now, instead of taking years to sequence a genome, at Mount Sinai, we can sequence an entire genome in two days. And, and within probably two to three years, we'll probably do it in two hours. Um, what else has happened? Well, we've learned a lot about what's called epigenetics. We've learned a lot about proteins. And it's all become terribly more complicated with lots more data. But what do you need to do a genomic study or an epigenomic study? What do you need? You need tissue. You need a lot of tissue. And you need tissue from a lot of different people because if the etiologies of diseases are different, you may have to develop five or ten drugs for what we call, for instance, depression, or what we may call Alzheimer's, or what causes addiction. So there are going to be lots of different therapeutics we're going to need. So why do we need to do that? We need thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, of tissue samples. So how does that get to Mount Sinai? We have a personalized medicine department. It's a center that Charles Bronfman <laughs> has funded for us. Um, 
and its goal is to have 100,000 pieces of tissue, and they're well on their way to doing that. Along the way, we have, in a separate place, large brain bank, we have a bank of tissue around cardiovascular disease, and we have banks of tissue around some cancers. We also collaborate with other large academic centers, all of this work funded by the National Institute of Health, that have other foci of disease, other cancers. And we're a part of those networks, collecting tissue, sending it off to those places, those places do the analysis. So now, imagine what we've set up in the drug discovery ecosystem. We've got huge amounts of tissue so that we can begin to personalize medicine. We've got very expensive genomics, and that leads to a whole other series of biologies that we're studying, things called epigenetics and proteomics, producing hundreds of thousands of pieces of information. And then we've got clinical information on all these patients from our electronic medical record that's also enormous, that can begin to answer questions like, well, you know, that person who was depressed, they had a different age of onset than somebody else, they were delusional where somebody else might not be delusional, they didn't lose their appetite, they didn't feel suicidal, they were suicidal. So there are all kinds of different clinical information as well. You've got to put all that together to come up with new drug targets. So what's the best way to do it? That's the question of this panel. Is it best for us to make sure that that database, that huge database, clinical, genomic, tissue, that huge database is open to everybody, which it is now and that's how we want to do it, or that it's closed and proprietary? That's the issue. That's the public policy issue. We think that we facilitate drug discovery by making it open. We also think that that's the only way that companies are going to be able to do it in the future because they don't have access to all that tissue. They don't have the statisticians, the genomic people, the proteomic people, the mathematicians, the computer scientists, all the things that are necessary to do that. So we think drug discovery is going to be facilitated by open access. Have you participated or collaborated uh, with these databases? Yes. With the drug companies? Yes. We, now companies come to us and they say, for instance, um, you guys got a huge database in inflammatory bowel disease. We'd like to work with you in that database. We know you've got a whole bunch of tissue. You've got detailed clinical profiles in your electronic medical record. But we also know that since you're doing lots of other diseases, you don't have the manpower to have all the statisticians, the mathematicians, and the technicians that might be necessary to harvest all that tissue, to do the genome screens, to look for the targets. But you've got the platform, and you've got the leadership to do it. So we're going to fund you to do that. And we develop a relationship with them over that. And that relationship is also an open relationship. I mean, if they see something that they want to develop a new molecule around, and they then get a, what's called a composition and matter patent around a new molecule, we'll share in that royalty. But we don't close the database in that IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. A researcher Harvard came and wanted to... Still has the same access to that database. Right, but not doing anything special right. the way a drug company might. Perhaps in Roy, slightly different view of the world in terms of open access to uh, I'm not sure these? We, actually, I'm not sure we do. Okay. Um, but um, 
I think that the, so I think what I would say is in general, um, I mean, I think open source to data, I think is just something that's coming and, and is already here today and in fact is inevitable. I mean, forgive my characterization, I'm not a scientist, so forgive my um, um, simple, simple characterization here, but if you have lots of tissue, you have lots of data, forgive me. And so to do a, um, you know, do a human genome is one terabyte of data. So on your phones, many of you are on your phones in front of you, so you've got 64 gig, right? So one terabyte's quite a lot, let's put it that way. And to kind of give you a sense, um, in, in our data centers, you know, so we're, we're a reasonably large company, we're the largest company, we're a reasonably large company, and we have a lot of data. And we have about 38 terabytes across our data centers around the world. Now, the good news is data is getting much cheaper, right? And storage of data is much cheaper. In fact, you can actually um, store a terabyte of data um, with Google for apparently 10 bucks a month. So one of my colleagues has just told me, which is obviously good news. But the amount of data that's coming out, not just from the various tissue samples, but also just from the amount of scientific research that's taking place around the world is huge. And also, it's not the traditional players, perhaps, that you'd think who are actually doing a lot of research nowadays. So last year, for example, there was about 63,000 patents in pharmaceuticals um, filed um, around the world. Okay? And the, the top three in certain areas, the top three are names you would know. Roche was one of them. But the University of Nanjing, I think, was right up there. Right? So what you're facing, what you're seeing now is this massive globalization of, of knowledge and expertise. And you're also seeing, I think, at the same time, um, you know, a requirement, um, for, I think, from the research you've just heard, to, to analyze, collaborate on massive amounts of data. You know, and obviously the speed of which we can, we all as humanity will share, the speed at which we benefit from that will be on the, the degree to which we collaborate and work on that data simultaneously around the world. Now, that said, you know, and you would expect me to say this, because our, our clients, you know, we are not in pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical research, is not what we do, but our customers are pharmaceutical companies in the same way that our customers are hospitals, our customers are non-profits, our customers are intellectual property lawyers, okay? And there has to be some degree of, kind of, somewhere in this system, there has to be some degree of economic reward. Now, I think historically, and again, I'm not an expert on the industry structure of the pharmaceutical company. There are many learned people in this room who know that better than I do. But historically, research you know, was done, and many of the benefits of the, the economic benefits of the research accrue to the very large pharmaceutical companies. So I think collectively we have to find a way to ensure that everybody, there, is a, there is some economic benefit to some of the traditional players because that's where the go-to-market is and all those capabilities. So I would say... Um, so in response so, to your question. As Thomson Reuters, how do you make, how are you anticipating to make your money uh, if it's all going to be open source? Well, I, I think, so what would happen is I think we, we make money today in other industries where, in fact, it is open source, but where we make our money is not because the information is not available. Much of our business, you know, content tends to commoditize pretty rapidly. So much of the way, the way we make money is we basically position that piece of content and those piece of analytics at the right point in time in the professional user's workflow. So we give them the right information as they're going through their, their drug discovery process. We give them the right information as they're thinking about how they go to market. That's how we make our money. But I think the way we all benefit from that is that if you have open source but with a degree of standards, 
because there's no point having a big bucket full of information if you can't find it. So you have to have some degree of taxonomies in there in order to make it searchable so people can collaborate and they'll work together. And when you say your clients are pharmaceutical industry, how, how do they use your services in this process? Well, they use our services in a number of different ways. So they use some of our services to f try and find out if, in fact, there's a patent on the drug in the first place, right, which may sound a rather obvious step, but they spend quite a lot of time doing that. And um, they also use our services um, as w to, to, to really understand kind of um, where the, in the, when the go-to-market trials are taking place, where exactly that's taking place and around the world, and also to target those trials more effectively. And Ken, on your uh, 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 platform or your arrangement, you, as a, as a uh, health system, plan to make money by having a share of the drug. Is that right? Right. So you're actually, I mean, in the old days, your Mount Sinai did not actually participate as a drug company, typically. Uh, you did the research, and then the drug company did it. Now you're actually going to be part of a, partly the drug company, no? Right. Well, yes and no. Um, it wouldn't be fair to say in the past, a lot of academic medical centers haven't shared in royalty income from their discoveries and the patents that they filed. Um, we, as an example, file 100 patents a year, um, and we'll license probably 10 of those patents every year, and we have things in the pipeline all the time. Um, so, for instance, when you guys got your flu vaccine, that's Mount Sinai intellectual property. Everybody's flu vaccine, H1N1, that's Mount Sinai. And there'll be a universal flu vaccine in a few years, and that's our intellectual property as well. Thank you. <laughs> um, the, first, the first major... Aren't you a little premature there? He said a few years. Well, right. It's in, it's in development. And I think anti, antibodies and vaccines are a little easier to make than, than drugs, and you know, where, you, where you could fail. Um, the first really new patent on a new mechanism of action in depression is a drug called ketamine, and that was discovered by the dean of our medical school. So we're, we're heavily into the drug discovery and drug development business. Um, but what's unique now is that 10, 20 years ago, there was a lot of venture capital that said, gee, you guys are smart. Why don't we put you together in a company? We'll put a bunch of patents together. We'll fund you, and we'll see what happens. Um, and it failed. A lot of those companies failed. So there isn't a lot of VC money now, and we call it the valley of death, from the time we come up with an idea until the time there's proof of concept and Big Pharma says, whoa, this looks like something we can spend $10 billion in. Most ideas aren't worth, they That's die. Right. Yeah, they die. Um, so the drug companies, Big Pharma, has more and more gravitated toward being drug development houses, where there's a little less risk than drug discovery houses. And with VCs pulling out of biotech, we've got this hole that we have to fill in the innovation ecosystem. And that's got to be filled by academic medicine. And the way academic medicine is filling it is with these large databases and the tissue that they collect and the good scientists that they have. But it also puts them in a position to change the business model. But to change their business model, it's not going to work if what they patent is something like, you know, give you, we have time for an example? Um, we did a big study on, with the Harvard Brain Bank on Alzheimer's disease. And in that study, we took brains from the Harvard Brain Bank 
and b control brains of people whose age of onset was typical for Alzheimer's, late 70s, 80s, instead of those very young Alzheimer's patients in which they've been shown a gene that seems to be associated with those cases. So we're looking at garden variety Alzheimer's disease. And what we found, to everybody's surprise, was that genes that affected inflammation were the ones that differentiated the Alzheimer's brains from the normal control brains. And particularly the genes that controlled a certain inflammatory cell that's called microglia that might eat up bad things in the brain. So suddenly there was this idea, whoa, all we've got to do is develop drugs that'll make microglia work better. If Mount Sinai had patented that, it would have never held up because we didn't have a compound, we didn't have any proof, and the reason it wouldn't have held up is that 10 generics would have jumped all over it if that had ever become a drug, and no company is going to take it. So instead, what happens with that information is somebody's got to come up with a molecule or an antibody or a protein, because those patents are strong. Those are called composition and matter patents. So when we have this big database that's open, we're not precluding drug development and people making a big profit. I think what we're doing instead is directing them toward the target, and it's then their responsibility to find the compounds and to build the animal models that will prove that that compound works, and then they can file a patent. So uh, from what you've said, you know, it does sound like drug discovery is, is ceasing to become chemistry and much more really IT. I mean, you can mention you know, a lot of mathematicians and statisticians, and you suggested that uh, what you're really doing is giving people information in the flow process of the development of the drug. Um, are we seeing a, a fundamental shift in drug development to much more uh, traditional data analytics uh, and uh, uh, away from actually uh, the chemistry and the development of compounds? I think um, it's going to be both. It's yeah, just that we've that. now got a front end that's all about genomics and proteomics yeah. and epigenetics and huge numbers of tissue and an army of computer scientists and mathematicians and tera, tera, terabytes of data and then a lot of data mining to come up with the ideas and some really smart algorithms and some smart computer scientists. So we have, I mean, we have scientists who actually work on our... Um, we probably have, I think, um, I think in this business we have a couple of hundred scientists, all of whom have advanced, advanced um, um, masters in uh, um, in chemistry, and many of them have done research, and they are they are ta they are tagging the data. That's kind of what they do, and the, the, so I we totally agree. You 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 obviously if, just from my observation as a layperson, you actually have to have both, but the way you make this go faster. The way you make this go faster is start trying to tag the data in such a way and give it a schema, which is actually it's fine, you can find it. Because as I mentioned, otherwise you have enormous, you have separate databases around the world. So presumably every major research hospital has its own database. So that's good, but that doesn't really help. You know, it's quite hard to share that information when these databases are structured in inconsistent ways. And so the, 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 the discipline around um, and the infrastructure around tagging and making data searchable and shareable and ma being able to allow scientists around the world to, co to collaborate on it, even what I, what I would call the pre-competitive stage before economics really do get in the way, is, is not an insignificant undertaking. It's an important undertaking. And I think society as a whole will benefit from that. From, from that. There, there, I want to ask two further questions. One is, 
um, are we facing a shortage of people who can do the analytics in uh, this case uh, because they overlap with doing the analytics for Target or doing the analytics for Walmart or doing the analytics for Google? Is that a serious problem when so much of what it sounds like drug, drug discovery today is is really you know, a lot of IT data mining? I'll tell you a great story about that. Um, one of the founders of Facebook was Jeff Hammerbacker. Jeff Hammerbacker is a mathematician, and he developed the algorithms that helped Facebook figure out what they should advertise alongside so that they could sell space and, you know, would have a business model. So Hammerbacker is doing that for a couple of years, and he decides that he wants to leave that business, comes to Mount Sinai as an assistant professor, and joins the neuroscience PhD program, the genetics program, because he says he wants to do something more meaningful with his life than figure out how to sell advertisements and mine databases on people's personal inventories. Um, uh, and he's an example of what the kind of people that we need. Are there enough of them? No. There are clearly not enough of them. Uh, this is a burgeoning field, and it has caused us to rethink who we want in medical school. So that right now, we've opened up the the pathway to medical school from the traditional pre-med courses to kids who have a great background in math, kids who have a great background in computer science. If they didn't take organic chemistry, okay, we'll give it to them in a the summer before they start medical school. What we really want is a diversity of people with different talents to take advantage of where science is going today. So the... Uh Last question I want to ask, I think the last question, is uh, about the end, the, the sort of end result, uh, new drugs, new personalized medicine. So if, if uh, say, uh, I'm a breast cancer doctor and there are now scores of different kinds of breast cancer based upon uh, the genetics, um, and if you're having to develop a drug for each one, are we inevitably going to have a situation where the drugs are going to be super, super expensive because you've got this very complex uh, front end of having to use a lot of large databases and spend a lot of money. You still have the testing to show it works, uh, which costs a lot of money. Um, you have the same regulatory approval process, and yet in the end, instead of having, say, 50,000 women a year to use your drug uh, with new breast cancer, you're going to have 250 or 5,000, and therefore spreading all those fixed costs across a large number of people. Uh, we've just had a whole big, we're not over with it, kerfuffle about uh, drugs that are costing $80,000, $100,000. Is this the new normal? Well, you know, a commercial here for Zika Manual. This is, <laughs> no, no, this is why he's so important, because this is the most important question we've asked today. Um, and he understands the public policy implications of where we're going here and how serious this is. When Sylvati is $80,000 or $89,000 to cure hepatitis C, and the business case for that goes like this, well, it's going to save us that much money in the healthcare system. And everybody says, oh, well, gee, that makes sense. That's good. Imagine if we used that model for the first time we had a, can a tuberculosis treatment, right? If we thought that we should have priced INH Isonize it at what we're saving downstream from closing tuberculous sanatorium, we could have far charged a fortune. And what about the Salk vaccine? How much do we have charged for the Salk or Sabin vaccine because we're taking people out of iron lungs down the future and all the consequences of the institutionalization? What was that worth? What we've got to find 
in the kind of pluralistic society that we have, the democratic capitalist society that we have, is that industry has to show some responsibility too. And a return on investment can't be outrageous. It can't just rape the public because they've got some business model that says, look what you're saving. I mean, I can make a case that an Alzheimer's drug, which we're going to have to give actually now 10 to 15 years before you're symptomatic, and will save the country an enormous amount of money, we can wind up charging people over the lifetime of the time that they would need an antibody for some of the drugs that are being developed in Alzheimer's disease. We could charge them over the lifetime millions of dollars for that drug. Is that what this science is all about? Is that what NIH is funding? Is that what your public dollars are funding? Ken, can I yes, a slightly please. different point of view. So, first of all, I don't. The the I think the question you phrased, um, I think I would agree is a very um, is a critical question. But it was phrased very much from from a perspective, a North American perspective, right? And 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 and, and that's why we're here. We we are, we are uh, the center of. But 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 let let me just actually. So I, I'm not sure it's completely a North American's perspective because this drug that. Ken just mentioned, yeah. Zavaldi had a hepatitis C. While it's selling for $80,000 in the United States, it's not a bargain in Europe. In the UK, it's like 56000 and in Germany, it's like 65000 So because I have a British accent, you're, you're obviously confusing the point I'm about to make. And uh, so just forgive me for a second. So I guess I'm a, I'm a sort of essential optimist about um, humanity in general. And the, 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 the questions that we, we are discussing here and my father, I just put him in an Alzheimer's home last week, which is, you know, one of the more, so thank you for your work. <laughs> but, but, in, but if you're in India or if you're in China or if you're in Latin America, the rest of humanity is facing exactly the same problems that we have. And so whilst there may be a constraint in the United States in terms of the number of data scientists that we can throw at this problem, actually globally there, there is enormous supply of very, very smart, highly, highly educated people who are, their parents are going through the same sorts of issues. So I have, a, I have a more optimistic approach that whilst here in the United States, and by the way, I'm a US citizen, whilst we're here in the United States, we may have, we have a, um, a, a structure which may not be optimal, let's put it that way. In other parts of the world, countries which are, are bringing together huge resources to try and solve, to solve the same problems, I'm optimistic that they will be able to bring more, more, more talent to, to these issues. Well, well that, may be, that may be true, but, um, you know, Novartis is, you know, Swiss company. It's still charging $90,000 for its cancer drugs. Uh, just because it doesn't, it's not an American company doesn't mean it hasn't decided that it's going to uh, charge a lot. And if the drug discovery process is inherently expensive... Uh, the question is, can you actually even reasonably uh, have a lower-priced drug if it's going to be on a smaller number of people? The, the estimate for a successful Alzheimer's trial now, from the time you think about the target and identify a compound and put it through all the clinical trials and show that it can really slow progression, could be up to a billion dollars. But the market is enormous. Yeah. And... You know, Silvati is going to make in their first year multiples of that billion. So I think even though it's going to be more and more expensive to develop drugs, I still think it's going to be possible to reasonably price them if we take a responsible position toward that. But the question that I didn't address that you raised was, as medicine becomes more and more personalized, and Zeke was talking about breast cancer as a good example, um, 
we're going to get drugs that will be more and more niche, narrow drugs because we're finding out that all these diseases are heterogeneous. And the best drug for you may be a market that's quite small. So how can we make sure that you get that drug? And that's a very important public policy issue. But the science is there to identify those mutations that make that breast cancer unique and to find a drug that would work for that patient. Just, again, a little, a little aside. I don't know if any of you saw um, CBS Morning one day when they had a study, a, a, um, a presentation on something called Patient Zero, which is a Mount Sinai patient who uh, came to us after Hurricane uh, Katrina had wiped out her house. Her husband died in Iraq. She was 39 years old, and um, she had metastatic colon cancer. She was working in a VA hospital. It wasn't going that well. She, because of the writers at Esquire, knew about Mount Sinai and our genomics project. So she came up to, for us to work her up. And we worked up her tumor. We sequenced her tumor. We sequenced her gene line. And we put her tumor in a fruit fly. And then we screened fruit flies through a zillion drugs that could be cancer drugs to find the combination that would work for her. Um, and when she saw her fly with her disease, she started to cry. And when the computer scientists, who had been working for weeks on the algorithms to make this thing right, met her, they cried. But that's going to be automated in the next 10 or 20 years, and we'll be able to personalize treatment like that for everybody. We all collectively in this room, as we approach the age that's going to need that, have to pray that the healthcare system can afford it. On that positive note, yeah. uh, we're going to take uh, some of your questions, and uh, you have to wait for the microphone. So great, tell us who you are. Hi, I'm, I'm John Rotolo. Uh, two questions. So first, well, question. take one because there's many okay. other people. So there's there's a lot of old drugs that are very inexpensive and very effective. What can you do with clinical data? Um, for users of those old drugs to try and figure out how they might have other applications? Good question. Repurposing drugs is very important. Repurposing drugs that's patents run out, that are being sold generically for another indication, and suddenly we find are useful for completely different disease, has no business case. And uh, it would be nice if, again, in a bipartisan way, we could figure out a solution to that. And there are people in Congress who are talking about those issues. But there's also this repurposing agenda at the NIH. Um, they're funding ways to look at old drugs for new diseases. They just haven't yet worked out the step for the business case and who's going to market and get some return on investment there. First of all, almost all the big drug companies have millions of compounds in their libraries. They, you know, whether they've ever made it to the drug, but they have millions of compounds which uh, libraries that they go through once you've got a, a target. Um, but you should not confuse the fact that they're old drugs means they're going to end up being cheap drugs. And to give you a very classic example, thalidomide, which all of us know is a horror drug from the 1960s creating all these birth deformities, is now an anti-cancer drug. And let me assure you, it ain't cheap. It's in the tens of thousands of dollars to treat uh, people who have myeloma. Um, so just because it's old, and going to be repurposed doesn't mean it's repurposing is going to be uh, cheap. So, thalidomide was an interesting case because it wasn't being sold for anything else. Yeah. So these guys well, were able to... Well, not sold for leprosy. Right. So <laughs> these guys were able to put it on the market 
and get some exclusivity for their data package for a number of years, and they can make a lot of money. Here's a bigger problem. What if aspirin or something like ibuprofen was really able to stop the progression of Alzheimer's disease? Who is going to develop that? Because you can just get aspirin over the counter. Okay. Hi, my name is Leila Abdurrahman. Um, I'm a high school student from Miami, Florida. And um, one of the, I, I would like to go into biotech. And one of the big things that I've been seeing is that research in drug development and big data mining has accelerated exponentially. And I feel like with clinical trials, they haven't been catching up to, to this, at the same rate as possible drug discovery. So how can um, we develop new systems of clinical trials to keep up with the constant production of these new compounds? Did you say you're a high school student? <laughs> Mount Sinai has a medical school slot for you. <laughs> well, you want to answer that, Ken? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're 100% right. I mean, clinical trial methodology is um, still trying to evolve to the point that they can be a lot smarter about who they enter into studies based on probably a genome profile or a clinical profile. Um, the, what we know from the clinical profile, at least I know from all the neuroscience kind of studies that I did, whether it was in depression, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's disease, is you very rarely can say based on an age of onset or a symptom profile that this group of patients is more likely to respond to a drug than another group of patients. But we're moving that way with genomics. So what we've got to do now is be able to take that data and apply it to clinical trials. They're doing it a little bit in cancer right now, and that's having some major payoffs. Not happening in some of the other areas. What your question in this panel should also raise is, should there be open access around clinical trial data? If I'm going to do a breast cancer drug, and my drug fails or succeeds, and somebody else is going to do a breast cancer trial with a slightly different drug in a slightly different pathway, should we be able to see each other's databases and maybe learn from each other's databases, clinical databases, and facilitate the inclusion of patients who are more likely to be responsive? So I would just say two things to you. First of all, um, it's really, really, it, it is true that there are some things we can do to speed it up. But remember, um, you know, if you're testing, uh, say, an anti-cancer drug, the real metric in anti-cancer is, does a patient survive five years, right? Hard to speed up those five years. They're still the five years. Um, now, we do try to get intermediate markers. Do we have a marker, instead of waiting the five years, that we think correlates with someone who's going to survive or someone who's different? We have some intermediate markers, but they're not very reliable. So time without the tumor to come back. Lots of people thought this was a great marker, be earlier. Turns out only imperfectly correlates with the with the uh, five-year outcome. And we've had a lot, uh, at least in several cases, where we approved the drug on the basis of this intermediate marker of disease-free survival or time uh, to, before progression. It turns out it made no difference. So the cancer did grow, come back slowly, but you know, in the end, it didn't lengthen life or not. Um, on this last point, uh, um, open access uh, for actual clinical trial data. There are a number of companies now um, that have pledged, and it's still mostly a pledge and not a reality, Johnson & Johnson and GlaxoSmithKline, to open up all their clinical trial data down to the patient. Um, 
And as I say, it's more of a pledge because it turns out actually opening up all that data is a lot more complicated than it looks, and it's stored in not the greatest way at most of the drug companies, and there's still not a uniform agreed upon um, uh, standard for what that looks like, who can get access to it, uh, et cetera, because you just don't necessarily want everyone. Um, it's one of the things I'm actually working on is uh, open data source, and it, I think in the next couple of years, we're going to get pretty pretty wide uniform agreement. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Keith Bronstein. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Often in the cost containment discussion, um, the manufacturing uh, location of the pharmaceuticals is included, sometimes not included. And so a little two-part question. One, when you're talking about manufacturing a under patent, uh, 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 you know, critical pharmaceutical for cancer, for example, is it really that much cheaper to manufacture it in, for example, China or the Philippines than it is in Georgia or New Jersey, part one, part two? If that is true and that's going to continue, how can we do a better job, because boots on the ground by the FDA doesn't seem to be doing it, of making sure that when somebody's lying in a hospital in Detroit that they're getting the miracle cancer drug that they need to stay alive? <laughs> I think none of us on this panel not able are um, competent mm -hmm. enough in that area to answer that as effectively as it deserves. So my information is only uh, secondhand. Um, secondhand, I've been told by a number of companies that it is less expensive to manufacture over there, but some companies refuse to do it because they don't trust it. And secondhand, I've been told that, you know, if we only had more resources, the FDA would really like to be able to look at those plants more aggressively, but there are limitations in their budget and their, how they allocate it. And one of the other things you really do need to be we all need to be concerned about is even if we end up manufacturing drugs and chemicals here, a lot of the prior, the source chemicals come from overseas and are face the same issues with even less oversight than the actual finished compounds. So finished compounds, the FDA does visit the factories and, and stuff, but the, chemi the precursor chemicals have all the same problems of, you know, are we actually getting what we uh, paid for? And this is one of those big issues. You know, uh, the FDA touches about 40% uh, of the economy between food and drugs. And you would, might be shocked, but its total budget is under $10 billion. It's actually under $5 billion. Uh, it doesn't seem like exactly the right allocation, uh, but, you know, try to get something through Congress to increase its budget. Um, why don't we go to this gentleman, and then we'll go back there and up here. Um, Tom Strauss. I am a Ken Davis trustee, to be perfectly clear. Um, Sounds like a conflict of interest here. I'm not no, sure not at the all. question. I hope not. Um, Ken, if you share the assumption that we are going to solve some of these major problems and we've made a lot of progress over the last number of years, um, help me to understand the rationale for NIH cutbacks when the returns on investment, um, if you go back through the history that you did, uh, are really infinite. And is that broadly understood, as the people in this room hopefully do, or are we just kind of dreaming and just hoping that uh, private funding will take care of all this? Well, I'm sure Zeke wants to comment on this, too. Um, uh, you know, it's not hard for us 
you know, the CEOs and other, you know, scientists to go to Congress and to find people who are absolutely proponents of the NIH. They speak about how valuable it is, how much jobs it creates, it's the future of therapeutics, on and on and on and on and on. And yet they vote for sequestration. And that kills the NIH budget. Um, we just haven't, right at this moment, despite the compelling argument, the consensus in Congress that can overwhelm the fiscal concerns and the partisanship that can allow us to move on and fund NIH in a way that I think would be most advantageous for the population. Zeke, you have, I'm sure, so, something to um, say. First of all, I'm not sure your premise is one that can be defended. There are some definite interventions that have been enormously cost-effective and even cost-savings. They are the minority. They are not the majority. We have a lot of uh, ones that are pretty expensive for the return that they generate. And so you have to be a little more careful in it's not an infinite return per dollar. The NIH at the moment is about $33 billion. Um, and one of the problems, and I'll just give it to you from the inside Washington perspective, which I witnessed firsthand uh, at OMB. Uh, in the late 1990s, we made this huge pledge, we're going to double the NIH budget. And we did double the NIH budget. Um, and psychologically, what that did in Congress was the following. We took care of that. We're done. They wanted the doubling of the budget. We doubled the budget. And then it has remained relatively flat, little ups and downs. Um, and the flip side, as that it's remained flat, um, the fiscal situation of the federal government has gotten worse. Um, and so you have to say, if you're sitting in Congress, all right, I've got the NIH, I've got education, I've got, you know, 27 infrastructure, which is also deteriorating, I've got the environment, I've got all the other things where we have some discretion, um, which turns out to be a small portion of the budget, a third of the budget total, right? Two-thirds of the budget they really can't even touch, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and in that, you know, Funding for biomedical research is fighting against all these other things, which also seem to be high priorities. So unless the fiscal, I will tell you my honest assessment, unless the fiscal situation of this country gets better at the federal government letter, level, taxes go up, spending in Medicare especially comes down, uh, it's going to be very hard to justify a big increase in the uh, NIH budget. So one of the things I tell scientists is, look, Get costs under control in the medical side, in the delivery, in Medicare and Medicaid, and then you're going to have a better financial picture in Washington that allows you to say, look, biomedicine, actually, we could save money uh, now. And that, I think, is the sequence. And so it's not a short-term solution. That is a five to ten year time horizon. But I don't think you're going to have anything faster than five to ten years. Um, corollary, corollary of what Zeke is saying is that if the budget's going to stay relatively flat, maybe we have to prioritize where the spending is. That's been anathema to the NIH. Mm -hmm. The NIH really believes that if we were to make a case that we need more brain drugs because six out of the ten leading disabilities in the world are brain diseases, um, they'd say that's the Philistines talking. That what we really need is to make sure that the basic science is there. Because if the basic science wasn't there, we wouldn't have all the information that we need now that we're using. So how do you prioritize? That's good. I think that's going to be a real fight coming yeah, forward. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's, anyway, 
back there, we've had a very patient on this side of the room. Uh, yeah, I wanted to go back Tell to Tell us the, who you are, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm Robin Shribman, and I'm with <coughs> Thomson Reuters, um, but this is a more personal question about this topic because it's very interesting to me. So you were talking about clinical trials. My partner had stage 4 colorectal cancer, and at the time, the clinical trials that they were doing was Ativan. Um, so they were looking at Ativan, kind of working across multiple um, cancers, and we ended up at the Mayo Clinic, and there was this whole host of, of sheets we had to sign off of. Can you share personal data? Can we go back to genetics? Can I share it with Mayo? Will they share it with the U of M, the University of Minnesota? Will they share it with the doctors, right? And at the end of the day, it felt like the individual in the clinical trial was not making some of the decisions, or we weren't able to look at the right data insight and data connectivity um, and do the right analytics around the individuals in the trials. And so she was denied um, at Van twice, um, you know, and, and kept fighting for it. But those clinical trials, um, had the data been shared probably more rapidly um, and had the individual data, and a lot of people are willing to share their data if that's their last hope, and it's the only way they're going to move the, the medical profession public policy being, you know, lots of people, but as individuals, move it forward, right? And we don't sometimes consider that to move things quicker. So I would say that uh, I think what you say is exactly right. And, you know, part of this open data sharing issue is um, you have to get the drug companies to agree to it, and they have to be sure that they're not going to be attacked. I mean, that's their main concern. You have to get a platform that everyone can agree is right. And someone who's going to serve as the sort of, uh, not, not policeman is the wrong word, but actually maintain it uh, um, and have access to the people who, can, who are actually going to use it in a responsible way. The FDA has to often agree uh, to this because of uh, certain issues around competition. And then you have, inevitably, uh, a lot of uh, 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 patient privacy advocates who are very suspicious of anything which is going to share personalized information about patients without every protection which makes it virtually impossible to do. And that is a very delicate negotiation. And I will just tell you, the big, a big series of challenges is to get everyone on the same page. And, you know, when you've got multiple, at least four different parties, it's uh, slower than all of us would want. But I'm, I am actually quite hopeful. It is... Uh, uh, we are going to get there, uh, and probably faster than uh, many of us ha could have anticipated even a year ago. There's a question up here. Yeah. Hi, um, Matt McCambridge. Um, so to what extent, you know, I, I think you kind of alluded to it slightly earlier with a reprioritization um, by the NIH and others. To what extent do you think that the amount of money spent on the end-of-life drugs that are potentially comparatively ineffective is sucking money away from, you know, some of this, and, and just focusing on that reprioritization could really go a long way to um, alleviating some of the problems we've been talking about. You should sit down with Uwe Reinhardt and talk that through. <laughs> um, you know, there are, what, what we have in, in medicine today is, um, call, is trials around efficacy, clinical benefit. If there's clinical benefit, things get approved, and they get funded. What we don't have are questions around cost benefit and whether 
the cost of a drug is worth it to the system. Um, and I think we're going to be in this country a long, long way from doing that, but it's not uncommon in Europe. Uh, for instance, um, if you're over 65, the National Health Insurance, I believe, I believe, I could be wrong, but I've been told that the UK National Health System, maybe Zeke knows this, won't pay for dialysis if you're over 65. So you've got to pay out of pocket. Uh, that would be unthinkable, I think, in this country. Um, so you put your finger on a difficult question. Thanks. Uh, Sue Curry, I'm, I'm Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Iowa. Um, thank you uh, for this wonderful session. I, I have a question, uh, and it really relates to uh, the broad issue of non-biomedical data opportunities. Um, so you mentioned epigenetics, uh, and uh, you need data on exposures that might modify gene expression. Um, and so I'm just curious, um, you know, even from the Mount Sinai perspective, what kinds, and I, I know with all of the caveats that, that Zeke just mentioned, um, what kinds of data, in addition to clinical data, um, might be useful uh, in the big data sphere, um, not just for uh, treatment targets, but also thinking upstream to prevention? You're a thousand percent right. And it's almost infinite. Uh, the number of uh, things of exposures that you would like to have in the data set. Um, we know we're fortunate we have a history at Mount Sinai that goes back to finding asbestos for mesothelioma was our work, and we were some of the group early on with tobacco and cancer. And Phil Landrigan, in our, uh, you probably know in our occupational health group, is a leader in what he thinks may be some of the causes of autism and a lot of environmental toxins. So we may be a little unusual in having a database that can collect all that stuff. Perhaps we're collecting more than we need. But certainly as we go forward, a clinical database that doesn't include those environmental agents is going to be only partially useful. So thanks for bringing that up. I think on another aspect, and it turns out that um, it's a lot easier than the health data to get, is uh, all the data that are collected uh, regarding marketing and many other activities that we go into uh, or, or get collected from our daily activities are going into databases which are being merged with uh, healthcare databases to find out important uh, associations. It turns out that the protections for those data in terms of privacy are much less than health uh, data. Uh, maybe that's for obvious reasons. Maybe it's probably not quite smart that we have these two different standards of privacy, but in any case, being able to get that data, buy, buy it very cheaply, and merge it with uh, uh, all the health data, standard practice now. And you will see one of the uh, things Ken alluded to is, you know, they have this electronic health record that has all this information about what people, uh, happens to people in the health system, the doctor's office, the uh, a hospital, but that is increasingly being merged by lots and lots of people with all the commercial stuff we know, what you buy, your food consumption, your travel consumption, etc. and a lot of insights are uh, going to be obtained from uh, putting those things together. Toxins is just but one, you know, what you eat and how it might affect you uh, is going to be a huge, huge uh, research area of the future, uh, doubtless. Thank you. Hi, um, Laura Gaze is my name, and this is a question for Neil. Um, I'm just curious in what we were talking about with the NIH and moving, that, that's in the private domain, but if we were to move, um, sorry, more in the public domain, but if we move into the private sector and research being done there, 
are there does Thomson Reuters or other providers have platforms where there can be this collaboration between academia and um, private and public so that you can that they can collaborate and have that data be made available so that the development of the drug going from discovery to development and then commercialization can be realized is that something that you know is is feasible or, or happening so and that also touches on open innovation and, and et cetera. So I know for a fact that we do that. I'm not certain if our competitors do, but we, we're in a program called Transmart, and we, in fact, provide the source code to enable the sharing and collaboration of information. So you have, you know, um, Boeing and Mannheim, they use it. Um, there are a number, of, um, a number of fundamental research companies who use that too. In the back and then over here. Hi, I'm, I'm Brad Keywell. Uh, this is for Zeke. I'm wondering, you know, there's all this talk now about individualized medicine. What's the most promising thing you see in that world? And then what are the ethical, are there ethical, is there any like policy issue that might come out of the promise of individualized medicine? So I would say, first of all, um, I, I uh, am generally... Uh, I don't know, skeptic. Individualized medicine or personalized medicine is a phrase that had been used for about the previous 10 years, and you see almost all the researchers moving away from it because no, very little medicine is going to be personalized as to you. It's going to be to a smaller group. Uh, it's going to be still to 5,000, 10,000, 250 people, but it's not, except in rare exceptions, and I'm going to get to the rare exception, individualized to you. Now, there are cases, and I think uh, Ken alluded to some of them, but um, we have some cases of uh, personalized where people literally take your tumor, develop an antibody to your tumor, and then can cure your cancer. So Carl June at my institution, UPenn, has done this with leukemia. Um, but that, and that truly is individualized. That is you, and you can use that same thing on someone else, and it won't work. Um, the big problem with that is uh, it's just, as you might expect, like bespoke suits, really expensive, right? You've got very talented people with very uh, 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 large amounts of training uh, working on each individual by hand. Now, the, that is a very expensive process, and uh, it's not going to be cheap. Now, Parts of it are going to be automated. I think Ken would say, you know, we're soon going to do a lot of this and be much more automated about it, and that will drive the price down. But any time you do something bespoke, bespoke is, is, is very... Uh, so, and then the issue is, how much can we afford on a bespoke uh, platform? So I don't think we're going to... That's the direction we're likely to go that rapidly. Do you so, want to... Yeah, so um, we may have slightly different views on this. Um, and that may be, and that may be come from you know my background as a researcher. Um, you know, I think that what's happening in cancer is really rather extraordinary, and it's individualized medicine. Uh, increasingly, um, tumors are going to be sequenced, and drugs are going to be targeted based on what your profile is. And I'd see that within ten years as becoming almost standard care for for cancer. Um, what I think more about. Because, because Zeke is right, personalized medicine hasn't come to your primary care physician. I mean, you're, you're still getting the same medicine that you got, and it doesn't look like it's going to change. But 
Here's what may be disruptive and transformative there. Um, there's a chip that's called a low-power chip that will be in our computers in the next five years. The consequence is that for supercomputing like we need to do to sequence your genome, where the cost is very high because we use so much energy and it's slow relatively because of how the chip works, we're going to be able to go from two-day sequencing your genome to very, very quickly sequencing your genome. And it's going to become very cheap and it's going to become a commoditized test. Along the way, there are leading academic medical centers who are trying to find risk genes and resilience genes. So the primary care physician of the future, maybe 2024, maybe a little longer, is going to be able to sit down with you and say, you've got a risk factor genes here for cardiovascular disease, and they may name another couple of diseases, and they will give you a prescription for exercising or diet or other things that you do, which will begin to get us more personalized in a real way. But that's the future. Last question right here. Well, maybe not last. <laughs> last thing I want to do is get in the middle of Ken and Zeke, but what the hell, <laughs> my birthday. Uh, I'd just like to get a deeper dive on the question my colleague next to me asked, because I thought it was a brilliant question, considering from a high school student. As we get better with all these new elegant, you know, activities, whether it's genomics or proteomics or whatever, there's a rule of thought among statisticians that the classic double-blind experimental control paradigm is it, just too slow. It's not functional. So when you get more mosquitoes or fruit flies or whatever, and you're, you're hitting stuff that really is impressive with a particular patient, speed heals and speed kills, or the lack of. So we can't wait five years or eight years or ten years. So can't we force, as we get better, the government, FDA, whatever, to change the paradynamic way we look at the experimentation of this? talk a lot about that with the FDA. I mean, not me, but I know lots of scientists, and I used to have those conversations a lot with the FDA. I think it is a bad misrepresentation of the FDA to see it as an awful bureaucracy that is slowing progress and keeping us from great drugs. Um, I think that what the FDA has to do is balance diligence and rigor against um, speed and the, always the need to bring the drug forward. Um, and I think they do a really good job of doing that. And in recent years with some cancer drugs, they've really fast-tracked them. Um, but what concerns me is the opposite in my field, that there is such a paucity of, of breakthrough kind of drugs for Alzheimer's disease that the next one on the market is going to be marginally efficacious. It's going to be just about this big, and it's going to cost a fortune, and there's going to be a huge public outcry that we've got to have it, and it may even short-circuit what they need to do, which is the next long-term study. That concerns me more than... Um, the speed with which drugs are now coming to market. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think Ken and I actually uh, uh, largely agree on this. I'm not sure the FDA, I mean, look, if you were sitting as the commissioner of the FDA, it's one of the most thankless jobs in America. So say you, you know, approve a drug uh, on one of these early indications, and it turns out when you release it to the public, it turns out to be, uh, you know, unsafe in some way. More people use it. You get battered. Right? Say you slow down and then you know you're a little more cautious next time, which is a natural human reaction, right? And then you know people are dying because you're not getting drugs out. 
it is a thing. You cannot get right to the right place because someone is criticizing you all the time. You didn't do it fast enough. You did it too fast. Um, the flip side is uh, uh, I do think they are rethinking the randomized double-blind trial issue. They are thinking about um, Bayesian uh, approaches that allow you to follow a more promising arm faster. They have complications. There's no perfect world. Uh, you know, it's all about the statistics uh, and the probabilities. It's not proven. It's all probabilistic. And I think my own personal view is what we want to end up getting much closer towards is more conditional approvals, which is it looks promising. We're going to release it out onto the market, but every single patient who takes it has to be actually registered and we have to get data. The advantage of that is you get drugs out faster. You then find in much larger numbers so you can see things which are happening at a low rate but are, could be very serious quicker. Um, but then you have to have the guts to say, if something's not working, pull it from the market. And you better believe there, are, you know, there may be a small number of people being seriously harmed and a large number of people who think they're being positively effective, and they're going to scream bloody murder. And so that is a, it's a place I'd like to go, but it does require being, you know, wearing your bulletproof vest if you're going to have to pull something off the market. It, it absolutely does. All right, we're going to have one more question over there. Hello, my name is Bill Kiffmeyer. I'm a molecular biologist also. And um, there is technology that allows us to speed up some of the clinical trial things now, which is digital PCR. Uh, it's, it was a paper published by Tally et al. out of Paris a few months ago where they follow patients and patients that did not have apparently KRAS mutations in colon cancer actually did show up with cell-free DNA in their blood. Uh, so they followed those patients, then they're following those now. So there is technology out there now to speed up some of these trials so that we can monitor patients yearly or six months at a time. So just a comment. In cancer, because five years is too long to wait. And we think about this all the time, which are biomarkers, we call them, intermediate markers that are telling us that a drug is working. The problem is, as we go back along what we thought were biomarkers that were so useful, we find out that we often were wrong. And it's PCR, so you say you have no cancer. But that's not the same as saying that it's not going to come back. So, yeah. Look, every one of those tests are not perfect, and the question is how much are you willing to, uh, uncertainty are you willing to tolerate in the system? All right, thank you very much. I want to thank uh, Ken and Neil. Good job. Good job. Good job.